This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Good morning, or I guess good afternoon, good night. It's morning where, where we are. This is Trevor Barrett, and I am here as an accessory to Paul Wilson. Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> doing well. Definitely not the case, but yeah, I appreciate it. I'm doing well. <laughs> Excited to talk talk with you today. Well, I'm going to try to come up with different ways to, to do that. There was just, I, I don't know if you've seen it, on YouTube, the David Tennant and uh, and Martin, or sorry, Michael Sheen have this like little Zoom thing they do, and it's pretty funny. And in one of them, they were going back and forth on ways that they could bill themselves. <laughs> David Tennant, notwithstanding Martin Sheen, <laughs> or sorry, Michael Sheen. I keep, <laughs> there's a part of that too where they're like, oh, you must have been trying to get Martin Sheen. <laughs> it's pretty funny stuff. That's anyway. Funny. Neither here nor there, but I'll, I thought that might be kind of funny to, to see what happens. So so get ready for those. All right. I'll, I'll keep on my toes then, I guess. <laughs> well, we're here today um, to discuss uh, a topic that I, I do really like, a topic that I uh, find inspiring and peaceful and hopeful and existentially dreadful at times, but not, not necessarily a topic that I feel particularly well-versed in. Um, we're going to talk about nature writing today. We'll get there in a minute, but I guess first, want to see how you've been doing, Paul, and um, ask you a question, uh, what you've been reading. But go ahead and start with how you've been doing and, and then follow yeah. up with that. Yeah, I've been doing well. I've been kind of, you know, just our whole family basically has been vaccinated except our youngest, and he's 13. So, you know, that just opened up where they could get vaccinated. So he got his first jab on Tuesday. So it's we're starting to see nice. the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you can kind of, we're still trying to be careful with him just to be safe, but it's just little things like, you know, I've been in the library a couple of times in the past week and I had been doing like a curbside pickup for well over a year. Um, mm-hmm. And so just those little things that all of a sudden you start to say, oh wait, maybe life is getting back to a little <laughs> bit of normal normalcy. So yeah, it's been going well. Um, how about you? Been doing really well. S- same situation here. We still have a few who aren't vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they have been going to school. I mean, here, mm-hmm. here in Utah, it hasn't been as bad as it's been in many other places. I think right. we've done pretty well. Um, not necessarily because of anything we've done. I don't think, uh, maybe, but, um, maybe just by virtue of the kind of state that it is and we're all pretty mm-hmm. spread out. Uh, but, but yeah, we've, uh, my wife and I are vaccinated and we've been trying to get our boys in to get them vaccinated, but. That hasn't uh, been as, as easy to accomplish because we want it on their records and right. know, we're trying to figure out the best way to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But we'll get there too. We will get there yeah, too. Exactly. Making steps in the right direction anyway. But oh, yeah. yeah, as far as what I'm reading, um, so a couple months ago on Twitter, I had, you know, sometimes I'll kind of get stuck on a certain publisher. And mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about coffee house books. And, you know, I read. In the Distance by Hernan Diaz at one point, and that book is just amazing. And so I kind of threw it out to everybody and just said, like, what are some other coffeehouse books that are some of your favorites? And so I got a, a, a nice long list of books. But one name that came up more often probably than any other one was Brian Evanson. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I had not actually heard of him. So, you know, he'd been kind of ever since then, he'd been kind of percolating. And so anyway, speaking of the library, the other day I picked up one of his books called Songs for, or Song for the Unraveling of the World. And it's a series of short stories, which we talked about previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that I'm about halfway through this one and it's really good. It's they're, they're definitely horror stories. And I would say they kind of remind me a little bit of, I don't know if you know, Thomas Ligotti. Um, he's like an, mm-hmm. a little bit older, maybe from the 80s and 90s horror writer. 
and then uh, Samantha Schweblin, and then also maybe a little bit of some Jeff Vandermeer in there, because there's some kind of weird sci-fi weirdness that goes on. Um, So anyway, I'm making my way through, very unsettling. You know, they're not necessarily gory, but they're more kind of psychological, just weird stuff happens and kind of creepy stuff. So you're often kind of dropped into the middle of a story and kind of left to find your bearings. You don't really know what's going on. So, you know, I like that kind of thing. So yeah, so far so good. I would really recommend them. It's, it's interesting. And he has several other collections of stories that I, I think I might pick up down, down the road. So I feel like I do know the name Ryan Evanson. Maybe yeah. it's just a, it, it, maybe it sounds like a friend or something. I, guess. I know it, like it is it. one of those names. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. Cool. Based on what I'm reading, not that the author uh, mirrors the work, but I don't know if you'd want to be friends with this guy. No, I'm just kidding. It, he's definitely <laughs> got, um, yeah, like I said, just very unsettling, very creepy, um, kind of nightmarish, but in a very intriguing and fascinating way. So yeah, hmm. it's good stuff so far. How about you? What are you reading? So I'm reading um, <clears throat> Molly Keene's 1981 novel, Good Behavior. It was just reissued by NYRB Classics. And so I've been going through that. And that, yeah, the also maybe not a horror story, but maybe, you know, a little bit, uns- well, very unsettling, a little dark mm. comedy. Um, mm. I, I don't know too much about it as far as, you know, where it's going to go. I'd never really heard about it. It was a, It was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And I'd never, it had never registered. I've typed the shortlists for the Booker Prize many, many times. I've discussed shortlists with people on Goodreads, you know, including that particular year. And this book has never really stood out to me as anything other than just a, oh, there's that probably forgotten book. But fortunately, no, not forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> it had been released by the Folio Society maybe a decade ago with a really good introduction by Jane Gardam and, and boy, this is this is something else. This is fun writing, uh, kind of dark, and you know, starts with a with a, a death in a in a kind of a creepy. Uh, I don't know. It's just weird. But but yeah, yeah. that's what I've been reading. It's it's a uh, uh, Molly Keene's Good Behavior, more like what? Bad Behavior, really. But <laughs> sounds like it. What what year was that? Do you do you happen to know what year that was um, on the Booker N- finalist list? the same year as uh, Midnight's Children. So 1981. Ah, yeah, it didn't have a chance um, that no, year. Um, not. It's also the same year as like uh, some Ian McEwan. I mean, there are, there are various other um, mm-hmm. well-known authors and books that came out that year that were on that short list. And so I think that's why this one just always looked like that curiosity in the corner. Right. right. Um, that doesn't, doesn't stand out, but uh, yeah, this is, this is something else. Uh, if you get a chance huh. to, to grab onto this one, I would recommend it. It's, it's, it's really funny in a way that you're like, I should be chuckling about that. I think right. it's going to get darker. I think it's going to get less humorous as I go along, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that about those long lists and, and not just for the booker, but different prize lists. Like sometimes the book that won, you look back and you're like, Oh yeah, that was a no brainer. But then mm-hmm. a lot of times what I'll find is you look back at those lists and you kind of look between the lines and dig up some of those ones that weren't, that didn't necessarily win. And in some cases, they turn out to be ones that you like even more than the winner. So it's always kind of fun to explore those. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, I, I like doing that too. We On my Goodreads page, we do, uh, well, we have done it. It's been a while since we've done it, but shortlist reads where we will go back and do a historical shortlist. Um, and we haven't done 1981. I think we did 1980. 
Um, we tend to do it by decade. Like let's do one from the seventies. Let's do one from the eighties, nineties, you know, and we'll go up and then we'll go back to the seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands. And, 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 you know, I participate as I can, which isn't terribly well. <laughs> right. No, I like that. Now idea, I can then. participate in this one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I know what, I know what decade and year you're going to pick next time. Exactly. I'll be voting for it. I've already read Midnight's <laughs> Children. I've already read the McEwen, which I think is Comfort of Strangers. I could oh, be wrong. Yeah. Speaking uh, of but, creepy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It seems like a pretty good, good shortlist once I put those yeah. things in there. Absolutely. Um, any purchases or books you've checked out from the library that look promising that maybe you're not reading or just want to bring up? Yeah. I've had one of those rare periods where I've actually not really purchased very many books lately, which might explain my twice weekly um, library runs mm-hmm. between me and our, our two boys, you know, we, and, and my wife too, of course, but we, yeah, we definitely burned through the books. So yeah, let's see, what have I been getting lately? I, I mentioned a couple of them last time that I've been reading. Um, Give me a moment. Why don't you go, go over You're yours totally real fast? Fine. Yeah, let me let me try to remember <clears throat> the names of them. So I was just going to bring up one, and I, I I've talked with you a little bit about this on Twitter, but I, I always have to be banging the drum for Jonathan Stroud. Mm-hmm. He is mm-hmm. a British um, uh, children young adult writer, um, but boy, these books are funny um, and great. Uh, there's he kind of got famous for the Bartimaeus tr- uh, trilogy. Yep. which I have not read yet, um, but plan on doing it. But the one that I got sucked into, thanks to my wife, is uh, the series of five books called Lockwood and Co. Mm-hmm. And, the, oh man, I love these books. I loved it from the second that I started the first one called The Screaming Staircase. Um, they're kind of ghost stories. And, uh, you know, this is turning more into a recommendation for Lockwood and Co. But I loved them so much since the last one, since I read the last one a year or two ago, I've been very anxious to see what he would do next. And that book just came out in the UK. It's called The Outlaws Scarlet and Brown. And it comes out here in the US in I think September or October. But I couldn't wait. I had to buy it and import <laughs> it from the UK. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, my wife was the one who checked the mailbox that day. Uh-oh. And since, since she was the one who who got me, uh, uh, you know, started, uh, she, she gets the rights to read yeah. it first. You deferred, then, you deferred. Yes. Yes. Plus I've got a lot of other things uh, to, to read and going on. So I was more than happy about that, but yeah, the outlaws, Scarlet and Brown, Jonathan Stroud, uh, new series. So, you know, well, I don't know how long it'll be or, or exactly where this one is going or what it's going to do. I, I don't know anything about it. Just very yeah. excited that he's got another one out. Oh, that's cool. It's funny because you mentioned those ser- that series to me recently, and I had the Bartimaeus trilogy, at least the first one, probably 15 or 20 years ago on my shelf. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I ever actually picked it up, and I think it's currently sitting on probably my son's bookshelf. <laughs> but after you mentioned this other series, Lockwood and Company, um, speaking of the library, I actually did check out all five of those for my two boys to read. And I'm, I plan on sneaking in and picking them up too, and our oldest who's 16 has been tearing through them to the point where oh. a couple of times there was one on hold and he's like, dad, when are you going to go get the next one? So yeah, I appreciate <laughs> that recommendation and plan to steal them myself. And uh, well, they sound really good. I have b- between my wife and I, I think everybody in our town has read them. 
and loved them. Like we mm. <laughs> we're yeah. always we're always saying Jonathan Stroud must be like, why is there this little place in Utah where my <laughs> books are just going like hotcakes? But That's anyway, funny. so glad to spread it over to, to your neck of the woods in, in Absolutely. Colorado. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can make the same thing happen here in Denver. So yeah, and then just to jump back, sorry, I, I had to look it up just to remember because like I said, we've been getting so many books, but one that I just picked up ties nicely into our conversation today, which is um, one that I heard about from Stephen Sparks, who is a bookseller at Point Reyes mm-hmm. Books. Um, and he tends to have some really good nature recommendations. And one that he had been reading is called A Most Remarkable Creature. Um, and it's The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey by Jonathan Melberg. Huh. And so I just picked it up. And um, as, we'll, as we'll discover later in our conversation here, you know, birds of prey seem to factor pretty heavily in some of my favorite nature books and then just in nature books in general. So his recommendation combined with the topic, I was like, you know, I'm sold on that one. So yeah, I picked up that one recently. And then another one that I did just actually finish is the essay collection by Zadie Smith, um, which was a really short one that just came out during the pandemic. And it's very pandemic focused. It's very slim. um, And it is called Intimations. I don't know if you've heard about that one, but Zadie Smith, you know, she is somebody who I struggle a little bit with her fiction, at least so far. That's never really connected well with me. But as far as essays, I would argue that she's probably one of the strongest essay writers out there right now. Um, And this particular one, you know, continues that tradition. It's, It's really good. It's maybe only like six essays, probably, I don't know, it may be around 100 pages long. But anyway, yeah, that's another one I picked up at the library and, and read in like a day or two and very good stuff. Oh, that's awesome. I think you you may have uh, you may have d- just disclosed maybe at least one of your books that you're going to be talking about later on. I right. may have the same well, one. We'll see. We'll see. I wouldn't be surprised if we have that one in common, <laughs> if it's the one I'm thinking of. Well, well, that's fine. That that works out great. So let, let's talk nature books a little bit. Like I say, this isn't something that I seek out. Like I don't go to the nature section of a bookstore to the extent mm-hmm. that it even exists. I don't even know. You know, it's not something right. I've ever really sought out. These are more just serendipitous discoveries that I've had as I've picked up a book or two and really have enjoyed them. I wouldn't say as a kid growing up in Idaho that I ever really cared much about nature writing. It wasn't until maybe even just the last 15, 20 years that I've um, that I've gotten into it. And part of that's because I, I moved away from the West and I mm-hmm. love the East Coast. I lived there for, for several years, loved it, you know, and there's tons of beautiful nature. Right. But I started reading nature stories or, or books or essays set back in the West. Mm-hmm. And boy, did I get a hankering yeah. to come back. It was just <laughs> insane how, how this all kind of started to well up in me. So I have been looking for it a little bit more lately, but I, I am curious as we, you know, nature writing is probably a really big general broad thing. And there are probably a lot of people out there who would say, well, nature writing is, you know, 50 different fields. You know, what are you yeah. guys even going to talk about? Right. Um, and yeah, that's just, I guess it will, we'll probably be incredibly general in our definition, but mm-hmm. what is nature writing to you? Or at least what, what kinds um, appeal to you? What, you know, is it, is it a, an ecological or environmental um, uh, approach? Uh, right. Is it something that just makes you want to get out and hike or walk around, go to the garden? Is it just something that evokes a sense of wonder? 
or yeah. again, existential dread. <laughs> right. No, it's funny. I mean, and I would say it's actually grown into all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. What I would probably say is I've always kind of not necessarily strictly nature books, but I've always been drawn to kind of descriptions of the natural world in, in fiction and other books. You know, you think of, you know, just throughout my life, not all in this order, but, you know, Moby Dick or Willa mm-hmm. Cather or um, like even J.R. Tolkien, like some of his writing you know, I grew up reading those books and they had a huge influence on my early reading life. And going back, I was reading them to, to our boys over the past year. And some of those nature <clears throat> descriptions in there are just mind blowing. You know, he's so good. So it's I think like I've always been descriptions. We could do a food one on that also focuses I know. on Tolkien's food writing. <laughs> anyway, exactly. <go> ahead. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and so I think it's always been something that I've been drawn to, but with me, as always, a lot of it is centered around the writing itself. Um, the topics do matter, but to me, a lot of times, if it's well-written, it doesn't have to be like flowery, beautiful, but just well-written um, and interesting. So yeah, it's funny. I, I There's that stereotype of like the older you get, especially men, the more drawn you are to nonfiction, you know, the, the whole dad book mm-hmm. thing. And so far I've avoided the World War II, you know, kind of biography thing. <laughs> I have no plans in that direction necessarily, but it's definitely been true for me as far as nonfiction with nature books and even a little bit with science books. Um I think I like the escape and the peace of it. You know, it's it's very peaceful. It does kind of inspire me. You know, we live in Colorado, so it kind of does inspire me to get out and do a little more. But then more and more, I've noticed there's also a bit of a sad tinge to a lot of nature writing now, some melancholy, um, you know, mm-hmm. due to obviously, like you said, environmental things, global warming, um, kind of that idea of what we're losing and what's already been lost. So, you know, that's, it puts a bittersweet um element to it but to me it kind of sometimes feels like it's like documenting some of these animals and landscapes that we're losing and so it's i don't know there's a lot of layers to it there's a peacefulness and there's a a joy and a happiness but there's also that other element which i kind of appreciate just the melancholy and also just the awareness obviously that brings so yeah you mentioned the nature section like historically i'd always just kind of stuck to the you know fiction section in a bookstore but i will admit that more and more that like i'm sure to hit the nature writing or travel writing um sections that's actually one of my go-to sections now so i would say for me at least it actually has turned into a an area that i specifically do seek out oh good well i'm looking forward to your insights and, and i'm sure more of these topics and more maybe what we were thinking of will come up as we discuss our list we mm-hmm. As as we've done in the last few episodes, and probably will continue to do to some form or another, <laughs> we've mm-hmm. got a list of of uh, three books or or authors or whatever you want essays. Uh, I'm not sure. We'll we'll see what you did, um, but three um, kind of standouts for for mm-hmm. us. And th- these aren't necessarily my all time all favorites. Um, and, and I thought, you know, how do you make a list of nature writing books without, you know, including just, just putting on their Walden or something like that right? or, or stuff by John Muir. And maybe, I don't know if you did, did you put either of those on there? On I did not. List? I mean, if, if we do kind of an honorable mention again, I, I had Walden on there cause Thoreau definitely, yeah. um, I bought his, um, letters or his essays, I guess it is recently that big NYRB. Uh-huh collection and yeah but yeah he's he's there but he's more of an honorable mention at least in this particular discussion and and i almost thought we could even just say hey here's the henry david thoreau <clears throat> list <laughs> you know yeah sometimes exactly in, sometimes in in film spotting they do these lists and when there's one that just kind of stands out that they're like well obviously we could put that on there um if we're doing a top five 
let's just call this the the you know that list in 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 honor of that particular author or filmmaker or whatever so that we don't have to do that (laughs) right exactly i think that's a safe way to do it but i could see this turning into you know future episodes like i think this is a topic where there's so many standouts that you know you could do a whole series on just this one topic so i'm looking forward to it sounds good well why don't we just go ahead and start then um and you know i don't know tell me how you made your list as yeah, you get into your number three or or third, you know, first one to mention today. Right. So I wouldn't say that my bookshelves are especially well organized, but I try to kind of group things by topic. And so honestly, what I kind of did was just started kind of browsing around those sections where I kind of keep a lot of the nature writing. And and then I did that and kind of looked over some of my lists from over the years of just standout books that I had rated really highly. And so from the from there, I kind of compiled um, this this group and the way I was thinking about it was um, like I said, I've always been drawn to nature writing, but there's been a f- couple books within probably the last 10 or 15 years that have really sparked that interest. And I think they're part of the reason that I actually do seek out that part of the bookstore and make it like a focus now. And so I included a couple of those. And then I also included another one that I just kind of stumbled on recently where it's been around for a while, but it wasn't one that necessarily had built this love, but it's like continuing the love. So that was kind of my general thought process. How about you? What did you What did you do? <clears throat> I just tried to think of books that have made me really start to contemplate the world around me, not in a human sense, but in yeah. a in a general existence sense. You know, here mm-hmm. we are all in this world, and with animals and the passage of time, um, and what ones have made me really become reflective on that. And so I, I all of the ones I have on here are, I didn't have any novels. But one of my honorable mentions is a is a novel, an actual novel that I mm-hmm. think did that for me. Uh, but I, I just kind of focused on the ones that really make me kind of reflect on my place in this world, both in the terms of its beauty as an observer, as well as just someone who's passing time here. Right. I mean, what that what that means. So that that's how I did it, and um, and then you know scoured my shelves to see which ones popped out. Yeah. As, as I was thinking about that. Exactly. No, I like that. Well, do you want to kick off with your first one or? Sure. Okay. So my first one, this, uh, have you, um, have you seen me talking about the Lauren Isley box set? Yeah. Not only have I seen you talk about it, you inspired me to buy it. It is sitting over there on my shelf looking Ah. at me right now. I have not read it yet, but you're the reason that I own it. So absolutely. Let's see if we can help have you crack it open (laughs) sometime. Um, it, this box set that the library of America released a few years ago collects, um, several books and essays by Lauren Isley. I had never heard of him before this box set was announced. I didn't know who he was, but from about the fifties through the seventies, he's a, he's a scientist, but he came out with these just, I mean, this, this is why I call this the, the like Henry David Thoreau, maybe uh list because mm-hmm. he, the, you know, the epigraph that he puts at the beginning is Henry David Thoreau. Yeah. Um, Many of the books that I considered uh, have that exact same thing, um, but this uh, this this is a two volume uh, box set that has it's called Collected Essays on Evolution, Nature, and the Cosmos, and it collects his books. And several of them were either nominated for or won the National Book Award. Oh, wow. This is the real deal. Um, this isn't just some you know Henry David Thoreau wannabe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lauren Isley 
was just this poetic um, mind as he's looking at the world around him. And I, I wanted to start particularly, I know, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pushing the whole box set, <clears throat> but the one that I wanted to, to highlight is called The Immense Journey from 1957. It's kind of his breakout. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the year before he had done a, a, a biography on, on Charles Darwin. So you can kind of see, you know, this is a guy who's, who's got his mind in all this. The, the Immense Journey is a collection of essays. Um, again, I'm not sure if I said it, but published in 1957, where he talks about nature, but again, from the perspective of, of just an observer here. And he starts it with a with an essay called The Slit. And it's an introduction to the whole book. I mean, he's it's not just an essay that he published somewhere and then, you know, oh, I'll throw it in this book. This is, you know, this book holds itself together really well with things talking about, you know, things coming up or things that have already happened. But The Slit is about this slit in, in rock where if you get in there, you can see into the past. Mm. And, you know, of course, we've heard all of that before. But in particular... Um, he says, I squatted on my heels in the narrow ravine and we stared a little blankly at each other, the skull and I. He sees a skull back Mm. in this slit. There were marks of generalized primitiveness in that low, pinched brain case and grinning jaw that marked it as lying far back along those converging roads where, as I shall have occasion to establish elsewhere, a cat and man and weasel must leap into a single shape. So he's mm. just talking about how all of this has come about even, you know, it, 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 his, his is the long view. And he talks about this, this creature, you know, cause it's not a human, but it's getting close to that. Um, and he, he says that the creature had never lived to see a man. And I, what was it that I was never going to see? Oh, wow. You know, what, what's coming up in, in the future of this world that will make it so that, man doesn't even see it or, or have the imagination to contemplate it. Um, this, this particular essay collection uh, talks a lot about water and about um, all of its life-giving properties. And, but not just that, but, you know, how the rainfall that you hear at night just outside is, is actually a Niagara Falls we just can't see it because we're, we pass too little time on this earth. You know, it, it, how much wow. it changes the world around us. Right. Uh, but very poetic, very, um, uh, I, I, a few of my books that were honorable mentions or, you know, and Lauren Isley too, aren't going to necessarily make me sound like I really care much about humanity. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that too. <laughs> but they, um, I think that they are very beautifully done and written that, while I completely understand that perspective of, Hey, this is all going to pass. We're kind of uh, problematic actors in it. Uh, these are the kinds of books that inspire me to do better and be a better human as we yeah. pass through this world. And, and this collection, the immense journey just puts so much of that in, into perspective uh, and would, would highly recommend it. And, yeah. it and, and I don't even think it's the best book in that boxed set. Um, I, I would get into something like the unexpected universe that comes up a few years later, but boy, these things, uh, again, uh, when I sat down to start this collection, I didn't have very, you know, high hopes, mm-hmm. not because of any, you know, expectation. They'd be bad. Just didn't have any, any context, didn't know anything about them. And it's become, you know, one of my favorite, 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 uh, books that I own. 
Yeah, it sounds fascinating. So when you have you been reading it like in pieces or did you sit down and kind of read it through or how did you approach it? Well, so I did read it through uh, back in 2015, 2016 when it came out from the Library of America mm-hmm. um, because I was enjoying it so much. It took me a while. I didn't I didn't even have the whole thing read when I wrote about it on my blog. Right. I'd read the first volume and then I spent the next, you know, probably three or four months reading the second one. Uh, just as it came along. But ever since then, I do pull it down quite often just to get back into that headspace yeah. because, and, and to that beautiful writing. Again, I, I didn't pull out a passage, but there, you know, I could, and I, I probably should have, that just shows how poetic, and I, I don't mean that to either in a flowery way, but just in a way that the language that he uses uh, punctures that part of me that says, this is not ordinary. You know, yeah. this is extraordinary. And, and is inspiring. So, so I've been, I pull it off the shelf quite often, probably, probably a few times a year, I go and and pick out a few of my favorites and then try to read some that I've, I don't remember anything about that one. (laughs) What is that? What is that anymore? (laughs) Oh, you've inspired me. I'm I'm pulling that one down and setting it somewhere where I can't ignore it any longer because it sounds wonderful. It's by, you know, because it's essays, essentially, Mm -hmm. it, it really works well as just a book that you dig into and they're not very long. Uh, the slits, maybe f- six or seven pages. So you could get through that and and already ha- and have that, you know, that little bit of inertia moving you forward through it. So I'll, I'll recommend yeah. it. Yeah, no, that sounds wonderful. Absolutely. Well, yeah, my uh, my first one, I would say, like I said, it, I was trying to think of the books that kind of kickstarted this this focus that I had more recently on nature books. And this is absolutely probably the first one or or one of the first couple ones. And it's called The Wild Places. And it's by Robert McFarlane. Have uh-huh. you heard of it or have you heard of him? I, I've heard of him. I don't yeah. know that book, though. Yeah, he is um, a UK author. And I think right now he's kind of, from what I understand, kind of the most revered nature writer in, in that area, or one of at least. Um, and so in this particular one, which isn't one that I necessarily hear mentioned as much as some of his other ones, but it's the first one I read and it really struck me. So he starts out with this question, uh, you know, are there genuinely any wild places left in England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales? Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of, you know, natural places, but like he's looking for truly wild places. And so over the course of a series of essays, he just basically explores and tries to answer that question. So it's divided into 15 different sections. Each one has a really simple title like island, moor, grave, salt marsh, you know, like those types of things. And so he just takes time over, I don't know, it's probably over the course of a few years and he'll just go visit these areas and just explore. And so it blends really beautiful nature writing along with kind of natural history and then his own personal perspectives a little bit too. It's not a memoir by any means, but he does kind of tie that part into it. Um, I won't spoil anything about what he finds, but let's just say that it definitely has that kind of elegiac and melancholy tone sometimes that I was talking about, you know, as he tries to explore this area and look for the truly wild places. Um, One of my favorite sections of the whole thing though, comes at the very end. And this is one that was very eye opening to me. Um, he's explored all these different wild areas. You know, he's slept on the edges of cliffs and he's walked across these frozen rivers in the middle of the night and had all these crazy adventures. But then at the very end, he's back near his home. And I'm just going to read a a quick excerpt here. Um, It says, up near the long top of the hill, I found my tree. I climbed up past its familiar marks, the crooked branch, the carved H, the elephant skin, the missing limb, until I reached the observatory. I settled myself on the forked branch and looked out over the land. 
Standing there in the observatory, I tried to imagine the effects of the wind across Britain and Ireland. I thought east, to the coasts of Norfolk and Suffolk, where it would be urging the sea to shingled plungings. I thought north, where it would be driving the snow hairs of the peak into shelter, fraying waterfalls into spray in Cumbrian valleys, and moving the sand at the mouth of the neighbor. I thought west, where it would be rushing over the summits of Benchuana and Croig Patrick, scouring the golden island on which I had slept near Rossro, and probing down into the Shearwater, burrows on Enley. And I thought south, where it would be stirring the still air inside the Dorset Holloways and buffeting the birds on the Essex mudflats. I imagined the wind moving through all these places, and many more like them, places that were separated from one another by roads and housing, fences and shopping centers, streetlights and cities, but that were joined across the space at that time by their wildness in the wind. We are fallen in mostly broken pieces, I thought, but the wild can still return us to ourselves. Then I looked back out across the landscape before me, the roads, the railway, the incinerator tower and the woodlands, Mags Hill Wood, Nine Wells Wood, Wormwood. The woods were spread out across the land and were all seething. Wildness was here, too, a short mile south of the town in which I lived. It was set about by roads and buildings. Much of it was menaced, and some of it was dying. But at that moment, the land seemed to ring with a wild light. And so, you know, I think, A, that's just beautiful and powerful writing. But what it kind of did for me is open up that idea of he had been all over the place exploring all these, you know, what you think of as these really wild places. And then he came back to this familiar place, but he had a new perspective on it. So it's that whole idea of like, even in your own backyard, there is some wilderness, there are creatures, there are, you know, you could pick this little corner of your yard and just spend time and focus on that. And you would see this whole world that you didn't even think about in a normal day. So yeah, I don't know. That book is just, to me, it was astonishing. It was one of my favorite books probably in the last decade. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's, I could rave on and on about it, but I love that book. I'm on it. Um, definitely. As I'm looking here too about, uh, you know, I see that he published Underland in 2019. Yeah. I, I thought about, one? yeah, I thought about adding that one. Um, it, the same thing that you were just. That's the one that I'd heard of. Yeah. Uh, when it came out. When you were just des describing Lauren Isley and talking about that concept of time. Much of that book is about something he, I mean, I'm sure he didn't coin the phrase, but it's called deep time. And mm -hmm. it's this idea, like you were saying about, talk about feeling small within the universe, like delving into the earth and, you know, just exploring. It's like a time machine. And so there's these, there's different essays again in that one, but in that one particular one, he goes down into this mine and he's looking at some of these, you know, formations and sediments and different things that are just billions of years old. And it's, oh man, it's mind-blowing it gives you the chills it's yeah that's another one i mean i've he's one i've been parceling out i have probably three or four others of his on my shelf that i've heard very good things about and i'm tempted to just read them all in a big gulp but i kind of have been parceling them out because i i don't want to burn through them i mean he's still alive and he's still writing but well, he, um, it looks like he's about our age yeah he was, exactly he was born in 76 and uh, yeah he's a little bit older than 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 me but um yeah yeah, that's that's promising. It means maybe some some great things are still coming. Exactly, Not that he and hasn't I, written great things already. It sounds no, like, absolutely. It's it's nice. When it's, yeah, like you said, a lot of these people you, you look back and and they've already passed on or whatever, and so you kind of mm -hmm. you know what you've got. But with him, it's always exciting to think about where he might go next. And I know he's done some dabblings with children's books and different things too. So I think hmm. yeah, it's going to be exciting to see where he goes. But yeah, he's a he's a favorite for sure. Awesome. Well, I'll go on to my next one. And I decided to, to try to, to pick out a book of poetry 
um, rather than just, uh, you know, an essay collection, which is where my mind went, you know, my mind with nature writing goes to essay collections really. Mm -hmm. Um, but this, this particular book of poetry is Mary Oliver's American primitive from 1983. It won the, won the Pulitzer prize. Um, I hate this cover because it's Mm -hmm. so drab. It's, it's a black and white, you know, it shows a tree branch, but in general, it's just a gray cover. Right. For a book of of poetry that is so beautiful in nature, and it's got summertime and berries and and bees and all kinds of things in here, and it's got this just awful cover. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Have you have you read any of Mary Oliver's poetry or this one in particular? I have read poems from her but i have not i own a couple of her collections i have to admit it she's one i have not dug in further i so it's been kind of here and there but yeah she's definitely on my radar so this one is it's 50 poems and you know i don't know if i'd ever really thought of this as nature poetry but it definitely is i mean even on the back cover it says mary oliver's visionary poems enunciate the renewals of nature and the renewals of humanity and love in oneness with the natural in union with the things of this world and it's got you know poems in here about the month of May, which we're in right now. This episode will probably come out a little bit later. But there's one called August. There's egrets, uh, mushrooms, and just it's first snow, um, vultures, rain in Ohio, you know things like that. Yeah. Um, but I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna talk about one called um, the roses, uh, because this is how she combines just beautiful writing about nature. I think. <clears throat> while also uh, connecting it with me, you know, with mm-hmm. uh, with what, how I'm feeling. It's the roses. One day in summer when everything has already been more than enough, the wild beds start exploding open along the berm of the sea. Day after day, you sit near them. Day after day, the honey keeps on coming in the red cups and the bees like amber drops roll in the petals. There is no end, believe me to the inventions of summer, to the happiness your body is willing to bear. Wow. I, I mean, like I said a second ago, it's May right now, but I love that, you know, those that just brings to mind this because kind of this hot day yeah. and this oh, thing's too rich. You know, you got these bees rolling around like amber drops in the petals. It just seems too, too much glorious pleasure. Right. And, uh, it, it this one always makes me happy and and I like how she says there's no no end to the happiness your body is willing to bear <laughs> yeah i love that and i love that line at the beginning i think you said when everything has already mm-hmm. been enough or whatever i mean that's that's beautiful everything has already been more than enough more yeah. than enough yeah yeah which you know just it, and not every poem is quite this i i would say this is a pretty joyful poem because mm-hmm. i think when everything has already been more than enough can be taken as I'm done with it. You know, every, it's been too much in, in a bad way. I know. I, I thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. it could have been interpreted like at the end of summer sometimes where it's just like at the end of any season, I guess there's that always that feeling, at least I get where it's like, you're ready for a change and it could be interpreted that way. So I think it's interesting that she took it in almost more of a positive way. Like you said. Yeah. It's already been more than enough. Um, mm-hmm. And I think she's meaning like we, we, we've had enough pleasure and joy and we're feeling really good. And then boom, here's, Here's even more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like I say, not not every poem is is that has that tone, 
but you know, I'm I'm feeling upbeat today uh, for the most part. So, That's <laughs> so a there good we one. go. But yeah, yeah, American Primitive uh, poems by Mary Oliver. She's um, just one of our our treasures, you know, as yeah. far as uh, poets and uh, right. writers, and um, and this is this is one of my favorite collections of poetry in general. So. Yeah, no, she's one that it's it's one of those holes that you kind of feel a little bit ashamed of because it's like, no matter how much you read, there's always going to be those areas where you're like, well, how how have I not read her? Oh, yeah. And she yeah. definitely is one for me. Um, she does remind me a little bit from what I know of, I, I mentioned Ted Kuzer in a previous essay, and I'm not saying they have the same style, but he has a very good balance of, he includes a lot of nature, but with that kind of personal lens sometimes that um, really draws it together. So yeah. As much as I enjoy him, I, I definitely need to do a little more exploring with Mary Oliver. Fun. Well, what do you got next? Yeah, so next up might be the one that we have in common. We'll see. <laughs> so this is another book along with uh, Robert McFarland that really fueled my interest in nature books. I read them both around the same time, and it's The Peregrine by J.A. Baker. Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. Okay, well then feel free to, we can just turn this into this part into more of a conversation. But yeah, um, yeah so... The way I would summarize it, I think it's set over the course of, you know, basically nearly a year and it documents Baker as he, as he tracks a pair of peregrine falcons in England. And it's a very fascinating, he grows increasingly obsessive as he follows them from day to day and he just documents everything they do. And so, you know, at the beginning, especially, I feel like it's pretty clinical and precise in his descriptions, but there's also a lot of poetry to the language, um, but it's super immersive and Along with him, you kind of feel this transformation take place over the course of the book where he begins to identify more and more closely with the birds. Um, on the jacket copy, it says, as he continues his mysterious private quest, his sense of human self slowly dissolves to be replaced with the beauty of nature, but also the darker side that drives so much of the natural world. And so to me, that was one of the things like I've noticed in some nature writing, there's sometimes that obsessive um, nature to some of it, like with people where, you know, whether it's a hermit or somebody who just goes off and meditates in a cave or just, you know, there's these different ways of people interacting with nature, but often it's a, a very solitary or obsessive um, quest. And, and that does appeal to me. It's kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. And um, so that whole idea of like the darker side of nature, I just had another quick excerpt here that I was going to read that I feel like does a really good job of capturing how he balances. It's beautiful, but also it's dark and there's the reality of what nature truly is. So I'll just start um, at half past 10 clouds of small birds sprayed up from the field and a Merlin cleaved through them like an arrow dipping and darting. It was a thin narrow Falcon flying low. It swept over the seawall curved out across the saltings and swung up into steep spirals. It's long sting like body swaying in the blur of its jabbing flicking wings. It flew fast, yet its wide circling seemed laborious and its rising slow. At 300 feet, it came round in a long curve and poised, half hovering. Then it flew forward into the wind toward a skylark singing high above the fields. It had seen the lark go up and had circled to gain height before making an attack. From behind, the merlin's wings looked very straight. They seemed to move up and down with a shallow flicking action, a febrile pulsation, much faster than any other falcon's. It reached the lark in a few seconds, and they fell away toward the west, jerking and twisting together, the lark still singing. It looked like a swallow chasing a bee. They rushed down the sky in zigzags, and I lost them in the green of the distant fields. 
Their rapid, shifting, dancing motion had been so deft and graceful that it was difficult to believe that hunger was the cause of it and death the end. The killing that follows the hunting flight of hawks comes with a shocking force as though the hawk had suddenly gone mad and had killed the thing it loved. The striving of birds to kill or to save themselves from death is beautiful to see. The greater the beauty, the more terrible the death. So, wow. I mean, to me, again, it's just like one of those where I read it and it just gives me the chills. Not only it balances the poetical writing with like some of those descriptions are very poetical. Some of them are very straightforward and he blends them together so perfectly. And it's just that idea of how even something as gruesome and violent as a hunt has its own beauty to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was this was the one that I put as my my number one, I guess, in a way. I mean, uh, um, so I'll, I'll go through it. I know you've still got another one to talk about. So I'll, I'll, and you've done a great job introducing this one for sure. By the way, did you notice who wrote the introduction to the NYRB Classics Edition? That's funny. I had forgotten that. Yeah. yeah. Our buddy, Robert McFarland. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that's where I first kind of had the awareness of his name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was funny as I pulled it up here. Um, I'm going to highlight a passage from page 10. Uh, where we get a sense that J.A. Baker doesn't, you know, again, particularly like the human world. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says, I have always longed to be a part of the outward life, to be out there at the edge of things, to let the human taint wash away in emptiness and silence as the fox sloughs his smell into the cold unworldliness of water, to return to the town as a stranger. I love that part. I know oh, there's yeah. another line there, but I just love, I'll end it with to return to the town as a stranger. And then we go through this whole book of him pursuing these hawks and watching their things through October, November, December, you know, going on and on and on January in January. This is a hunt page 127. We're not to the end of the book yet. I mean, he goes through April uh, of the next year. He says, I avoid humans. But hiding is difficult now that snow has come. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) A hare dashed away with its ears laid back, pitifully large and and conspicuous. I use what cover I can. It is like living in a foreign city during an insurrection. There is an endless banging of guns and tramping of feet in the snow. Uh, I mean, that's clearly not happening. That's just the way he's viewing the human world, you know, or human activity. One has an unpleasantly hunted feeling. Or... Is it so unpleasant? I am as solitary now as the hawk I pursue. Uh, yeah, this is a fantastic book um, that, you know, I don't even remember why I picked it out and started reading it. Uh, but again, captured me from the first few pages and became one that I think back on all of the time. Oh, I probably read it, you know, 13, 12, 13 years ago yeah. at this point. Um, and it- yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I probably read it around the same time. Um, and rereading those passages and listening to you read them, I'm like, why have I only read this once? Like, <laughs> I, as much as I love NYRB classics and there's so many favorites, I mean, if I had to pick one, that might be my my very favorite. I mean, I know that's a big claim and I'd have to think yeah, about it, but that would it's be stunning. Tough. That's a good episode right there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We should. Yeah, but I Never like that, it. like acknowledging kind of that misanthropic, like, you know, all of us have it to some degree, I would imagine, where whether through work or busyness of errands and schedules or just traffic or all that stuff, like sometimes you get to that point where you just feel like you're going to lose it. And it kind of reminds me of that, the very, I think it's like in the first page of Moby Dick, where he talks about 
he always knows it's time to go back to sea when he feels like knocking strangers yeah. hats off into the street and that yeah. whole section. It's kind of like that same idea of just like, I need to get out <laughs> rather, of here rather than commit suicide. Yes, exactly. That's, uh, that's something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so what do you have as your, uh, your last one? Yeah. Some, it, since, since that goes through mine too. Yeah, absolutely. So my last one is where, like I said, I tried to think of one that was a more recent discovery for me. I mean, I think time-wise it's probably not necessarily any newer than some of the other ones, but, um, it's one that I hadn't heard of until just recently. Um, it's called Sightlines, and it's by Kathleen Jamie. I don't know if you've heard of her, but I, I get the impression mm-hmm. she's another, you know, pretty well-known. She's won some awards for nature writing, and it's another collection of essays. Um, I, I think she's also written some poetry collections, which I'd be interested in picking picking up. But yeah, this one is a collection of 14 essays, um, and it's l- largely focused on the idea of kind of paying close attention to different things. And so it's kind of fascinating because it's, I wouldn't say it's like a traditional nature book, you know, like Robert McFarland, maybe, you know, he would, he would focus on different areas of the country or different types of geography. This one has some of that, but she like, so she'll spend some time in a Spanish cave that's covered in, you know, prehistoric art, or she'll be out on a ship in the middle of a bunch of icebergs as she watches the Northern light. So there are some stuff that probably would be a little bit more like maybe traditional, but um, two that stand out in my memory, the first one is called Pathologies. Um, so it's like takes place shortly after the death of her mother. Um, her mother dies of, I, I believe it's cancer or, or it's, it's a, a disease for sure. So she begins to think about just the definition, definition of nature. So in, in her words, you know, everything else, not just primroses and otters, like not all the, the fun, fluffy, you know, kind of the, the bees rolling in honey type of an idea, but also things like bacteria and disease and, and kind of the other sides of nature. So in this essay, she goes to this pathology lab. And she's guided through by this scientist and they're looking at this tumor under this really powerful microscope. And he's kind of giving her this tour of the slide, showing her all the different areas. And so earlier in the essay, she had been flying. I think it might've been to her mother's funeral, if I remember right. And so she's just looking down from on high on all the natural landscapes and describing them. So then she makes this really interesting connection as she's looking through the microscope. She starts to describe what she's saying in much of the same kind of language, like she's looking at a landscape from up above. So it's very fascinating. Um, and it's just one of those things, like you talked about, kind of opening your eyes to the other parts of nature that you don't necessarily even like to focus on, but it's still a part of nature, you know? So, and then the other one that really stood out to me, um, she visits what what's called the Whale Hall at the Bergen Natu- Natural History Museum in Norway. And so she's kind of walking around the scaffolding. They've put up all the scaffolding to clean like a lot of museums, they have a lot of the whale skeletons that are hanging in the rafters. And so apparently it's been decades since they've been cleaned. And so they're doing this major cleaning project and she's able to kind of get up on the scaffolding and walk around among these giant skeletons. Um, and so, you know, she uses this lens or this frame to kind of discuss everything from the history of the whale, you know, from like an ev- evolutionary perspective to the ways that humans have devastated the species. You know, it's just a very interesting thing. So just a really quick excerpt this time. Um, This is her. She's up on the scaffolding sitting inside of the actual whale skeleton. She says, two or three times on my visit, I sat under the blue whale's jaw or even within the cage of its chest, the thick portcullis of its ribs descending around. You got used to the scale, even to holding conversations in these surrounds. To sit within the creature's ribcage was like being in a very strange taxi, caught in traffic. But you could conduct a thought experiment. You could sit within the blue whale and look back, 
following the spine with your eyes as it voyaged above the hull, curving very slightly, continuing between the other whales, suspended every few, few yards by those chains and rods, until it tapered to an end far away. Then there would have been the tail, too, something the width of a small aircraft. Despite the size, you could, with a minimum of effort, extend your sense of self, and imagine this was your body moving through the ocean. You could begin to imagine what it might feel like to be a blue whale. So that was just, you know, one little excerpt, but that, you know, it's just that whole idea of, like you said, getting outside of yourself, thinking of the natural world without a human lens or maybe with a human lens, but also with other lenses attached. So yeah, I would highly recommend, um, she's another one. Like I said, it's a recent discovery. I've bought two other collections by her since then and have been kind of saving them as well, but I could see her becoming another favorite. I've never, never heard of that book, never heard of, of her. So that, and I really like that passage that you just read. Um, I, I feel like we've, I've got a lot of homework to do and, and pleasurable homework. I'm excited about this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I am too. It's, it's one of those, like we've talked about before, just the discoveries of no matter how much you read and how much time you spend thinking about books, there's always more out mm-hmm. there. No, oh, for sure. And, and and hopefully in a in a good way, you know what I mean, in an exciting yeah, way, absolutely, <laughs> in a depressing way. Speaking of more books to read, did you want to do a quick kind of honorable mentions or or other books that you have on your radar? Yes, for sure. So I I I, I put down. I was thinking about Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Mm-hmm. Speaking of a Thoreau disciple, exactly. Um, I also thought of John Krakauer's Into Thin Air or Into the Wild. Oh, um, yeah. I thought. I thought of Aldo Leopold's The Sand County Almanac, and then two novels. I think I said earlier one novel, but one of them is John Williams' Butcher's Crossing, uh, which is one of those books that made me want to come back and live in the West again. Um, and then the the other one that I was thinking of, too, is the one that came out last year from NYRB Classics, uh, Henry, Henri Bosco's Maliqua. Uh, have, you, have you heard of that one? Or did you read that one last year when everyone was kind of talking about it? Yeah, I did. I read it last year. Really good. Uh, what are some of your honorable mentions that you almost yeah. put on your list today? I'll I'll, jo- I'll jump through a few of these. I mean, I feel like some of these I've probably already touched on, but uh, Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey. I mean, that book is just amazing. I think I've talked about it before. There's a specific part where he's tubing down through this um, river that's about to be turned into a reservoir. And so it's kind of the last times that he and his friend are ever going to be able to see these sites that they're seeing. I mean, that one just has stuck with me for years. Terry Tempest Williams. I don't know if you've read her, but anything Mm -hmm. by her that I've read always blows me away. When women were birds and the hour of land in particular, really were were two that really resonated with me. Um, Of course, Barry Lopez, Helen McDonald, H's for Hawk. And then she has a new one, Vesper flights, which I've not read yet. Um, You know, Annie Dillard, we've, we talk about her all the time. There's one called a guy named Bernd Heinrich. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he has written a lot of books about ravens. And I haven't read those, but I did read one called A Year in the Maine Woods, where he just goes up and stays in this cabin for a year. And that one's really good. Um, and then the last two that kind of popped to mind for me are River Runs Through It by Norman McLean, which oh, I just mm-hmm. reread the last four paragraphs of that the other day. I mean, that, oh, it gives me the chills every time I read those last four paragraphs. That That book's so good. And then one of our favorites, our mutual favorites, Patrick Lee Firmer, Firmer um, hmm. you know, just him journeying on foot across Europe, you know, during that time, right before World War II. Um, oh, 
some of the nature writing in that is just fabulous in addition to all the other stuff that's going on in those books. So those are yeah. some that popped to mind for me immediately. Well, and uh, yeah, both of those last ones, uh, one that was on my list was River Runs Through It mm-hmm. by Norman McLean. Um, one of the only books that makes me like the summer heat. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, if I read it, I, I love this, uh, this summer heat. And if I don't, I, I, I don't like it. And, yeah. And that, that's like a, my antidote to the, the, the summer. Um, and then Patrick Lee Fermer, I hadn't put him on my list, but yeah, there's a lot of great nature writing, not just in that trilogy, but in his, um, in his other books about like Cappadocia and, you know, in Turkey and, um, and, did you ever read a time for silence? Is that what it's called? It's about him going to a monastery for a month and no. he has to be quiet. Yeah. That one's, I don't remember. I don't, I can't remember if I picked it up or if I, it's on. Yeah. But when I read about it, it sounds fascinating. I would love to get that one. Very good. Not quite nature writing, but maybe some of the same ideas of getting away from mm-hmm. the, the rushes of the city and London and life like that. And being a time for silence, you know, having, having to learn to be quiet and uh, in your head like that real quickly i mean i have a couple that are just on my radar ones that i would like uh, like i can't recommend them but they're just ones i plan to read first and i would just if i could buzz through those real fast are, are you still going on your recommendations though no no i i'm done and, and my recommendation is very similar i have no knowledge about the books themselves okay. but i have a reason for recommending them that i hope will still make sense okay <laughs> Go ahead. well I mean, i'll just buzz through these real fast but there's a book called the outermost house that's been on my radar. And again, some of these I don't know too much about, but they're just on my to be read nature pile. Um, Ian Frazier has written quite a few different uh books. Um, And I've read a few of his and I really do like them a lot. Great Plains in particular is one that keeps calling out to me. Um, And that's, that's one of the ones I've read you. Yes, you would uh, definitely. Okay. Your your buddy Isley is definitely high on my list to read. Um, Leaves of Grass. I've read snippets of it, but I would like to just sit down and make my way through the entire thing. And Hmm. I know not, that might be kind of a loose definition of nature writing, but there are parts of it that certainly are. Um, and then one that um, was recommended to me on social media is called The Meadow by James Galvin. Again, I don't know too much, but I think it's kind of one of those where it focuses on one specific place, which, I, as I've said, kind of fascinates me. Like when somebody just focuses on one particular meadow or part of a, of a um, state. So that's another one. And then the last two, The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson and the whole trilogy by William Least Heat Moon that I think I've talked about a little bit with Prairie Earth and Blue Highways, and I can't remember the third one. But anyway, those are are just all ones that are like on my big pile of nature books that I want to read very soon. So, um, Now let me kind of give my uh, recommendation, then I don't know if you have other, uh, just a general recommendation you want to give to to wrap things up, but this will be mine. Uh, Later on this year, uh, the Library of America is releasing Rachel Carson's The Sea Trilogy. That includes Under the Sea Wind, The Sea Around Us, and The Edge of the Sea. These look fantastic. I think they were just released earlier this year in in the UK. And I remember John Self tweeting the covers and things like that. And I thought, well, that looks great. What do we have in a, here in, in the US? Well, this is coming out. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, the, the Sea Around Us um, actually won the National Book Award. Uh, but yeah, let me kind of read a little bit. It says, Pioneering environmentalist Rachel Carson explores the wonders of the Earth's oceans in these classics of American science and nature writing. Uh, Rachel Carson is perhaps most famous as the author of Silent Spring, but she was first and foremost a poet of the sea. 
And the three books collected in this deluxe Library of America volume are classics of American science and nature writing. And then, like I say, there's Under the Sea Wind from 1941, The Sea Around Us from 1951, and then The Edge of the Sea from 1955. And yeah, I mean, the, this is this is her writing about the ocean and troubles and environmentalism, you know, 75 years ago, yeah, you know, 80 years ago and, and how much different, uh, boy, what would she feel now if she went and, and I know read, and that's what I always more. think about when I read some of those. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm going to pick that one up for sure. I have mm-hmm. the sea around us. I do have a, a battered old used copy that I, I picked up in a used bookstore. Um, and I think I have the silent spring too. Uh, but yeah, I, I would love th- those editions are so beautiful. It looks like it'll be a special, uh, you know, just a, a nice thing to to own. Because the other thing about Library of America is they have their notes and, and mm-hmm. sections and things in there that, that kind of add to the to the book in ways that I that I, I like. So. I can picture you already clearing out a little space next to your Lauren Isley to, to slide that box set right next to it. Oh, you know, I may, maybe misspeaking. Maybe it's not a box set because um, it would be just three books. Oh, okay. Um, well, either way. So it's probably just a single volume. I apologize, but I've seen the cover and it, I mean, it, you know, all their books tend to look alike with that black cover. Yeah, no, this I, one doesn't. This okay. one has kind of a more flashy, um, naturey cover. Oh, and maybe that's why I misspoke and said box set. But yeah, I think it's just one, one volume, mm-hmm. but, um, but still will, will look great by Lauren Isley. For Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I do have just a quick recommendation. It's not, um, quite as highbrow is is what you were just talking about, but I do feel like it ties in nicely with the nature theme. So during the pandemic, when it comes to like family TV time, we we were drawn to kind of comfort watching. So we would watch like the British Baking Show or, or different things like mm-hmm. that. And so on Amazon Prime, they are streaming the entire series of Bob Ross's The Joy of Painting. Um, uh-huh. I don't know about you, but for me, oh, gro- that, that ties up, in oh, perfect yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, growing up, I, you know, granted we couldn't watch them streaming. So it was always like a sick day when I was at home and I happened to be flipping through and PB- on PBS, <laughs> he'd be there, but talk about just peaceful, calming, you know, just like about as pure as it gets, you know, I, I love it. And so I was introducing my kids to it and I didn't know what they would think. Cause I didn't know how much of it was tied up in nostalgia for me. Oh, they're they're captivated. They love it. They'll they'll sit there spellbound, just like I have always been. Mm-hmm. You know, his his calming voice and just the sounds of the paintbrush against the the uh, the canvas and everything. So, but yeah, I mean, he has a huge focus on nature, and that's one of the things I'm as I'm rewatching these. Yes, he'll talk about the craft, but he also takes this time to say how important it is to spend time looking at nature. You know, I go out and talk to trees, he'll say, or, or different things like that, or he'll just like sit there by the river. And, <laughs> and that's kind of how he learns how to, to paint clouds and how to paint water. And so, yeah, to me, it's just, it's good on so many levels. It's it's good for just a comfort watch. But, you know, I've never painted anything. Like I said, I'm a terrible artist, you know, never. It's not that part of it. I mean, that does appeal to me just to watch a master at work. But to me also, it's just his talk about nature and, and seeing him transform these beautiful scenes. So it's streaming on Amazon Prime. You can see, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of episodes, so you can dip in and out or just watch them back to back or however you want to do it. But we've been really enjoying that. No, that's that's a perfect way to, I, I watched uh, a bunch of those fairly recently too. Just, it is, it's calming mm-hmm. and uh, and encouraging and kind of like, hey, things are going to be okay. <laughs> exactly. No, it's very affirming and just, like I said, during the pandemic where we were feeling, you know, very disillusioned and sometimes scared or sometimes unsettled. 
it was just a great way to kind of, you know, watch that and just feel some comfort and some, some joy. All right. Listeners, we'll be back here in a couple of weeks with another episode on some random uh, book topic. Exactly. And uh, having a great time with us. If you have any uh, questions or want to reach out to us, uh, any things that you want to to uh, suggest for topics, we'd love to hear them. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time. <laughs>